that's Kodiak. I mean, if you look for it, you don't have to look real hard. You can find the worst possible situation you could put yourself into pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 220, and we thank you for tuning in today. If we go back years ago to the very beginning of this podcast, Steve and I talked before this show began about, you know, we should start a podcast because we get to know some cool people. We do know some cool people. We have some interesting conversations, and it would be fun to share those with other folks. And that's honestly how this whole thing got rolling. And it's, you know, changed and adapted over time. But today is one of those episodes that makes me think of those origins. Our guest is Rafe, and he is a guide up in Alaska that we got to know when we were in Kodiak, Alaska, this past fall. Rafe was uh, with Jerry, and Rafe and Jerry worked together at the Foxtail Lodge, where Steve and I had our Kodiak blacktail hunt. Although Rafe is a guide, this was an unguided hunt, but he was there kind of helping out, doing some of the transport. We were using his boat, for example, in the mornings and evenings. They were dropping us off and picking us up. If you haven't heard about that Kodiak hunt, uh, go back to episode 201 and 202 to hear Steve and I recap that experience. I can't say enough good things about um, Jerry and Rafe and the operation there at Foxtail Lodge. As we've said before, it, it truly feels like family. Um, and Rafe, Rafe's a character, man. There's no other way to say it. He's just a fun guy to talk to and listen to. And we wanted to get him on the show to talk about some of his experiences and relate that to things that we can learn. So whether you want to go to Alaska in the future, or you're just interested in hearing the perspective of a guide that's hunted with all types of people and has a lot of lessons and stories to share from that, then you will certainly enjoy this episode. Back when Steve and I talked about our hunt, we didn't specifically mention who we went with. Um, And again, that was Jerry and Rafe at Foxtail Lodge. And they do have some openings left for 2020 um, in October, November, and December. So if you're interested in doing a Kodiak blacktail hunt uh, and fishing trip along with that, you can do the combo uh, as we did. Then go ahead and go to foxtaillodge.com. You can get in contact uh, directly there. Jerry's email and phone number is there. And if you have questions, whether that's about, you know, planning a trip for this year, or he's also booking for next year, or just questions about uh, the services that he has to offer, then definitely I would highly recommend that you go check that out. All right, let's get right into this conversation with Rafe and hope you enjoy this one. Rafe, thanks for joining us today, man. Welcome uh, to the Huntback Country Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Steve, uh, we met Rafe last uh, last November going up for our Kodiak deer hunts. And Rafe, I got to say, I was excited when we got off the plane there in Larson Bay and we were with Jerry and got over and met you for the first time. I heard something about a Missouri boy and I did not expect to hear that up in Kodiak. 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, been up here almost 10 years now and uh, grew up, you know, grew up in Missouri, just in farm country and uh, went in the service right after high school and bumped around the earth a little bit. And then, uh, you know, out Alaska just always called called to me and um, finished up my, my service time in the Navy as a CB and then uh, uh, went to school in Orlando for uh, marine mechanics and got a job in Kodiak of all places right out of school. So I, I moved from Orlando, Florida to Kodiak as soon as I got done, didn't know a soul. And, uh, yeah, started, started working in the engine repair and doing outboard service and stuff. And then got to Larson Bay on a, on a job actually, and got stuck for five days because of weather. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) But yeah, I was, I was working, working on some boats for a lodge out there and, uh, just met, you know, hanging out with the crew and we went and did some fishing and then actually ended up with a job running a boat out of that the next, uh, the next summer. And then, uh, got involved with a guy here in Kodiak that had been around for a long time and did some hunts with him, some guided stuff for bears and, and then, uh, just kind of transitioned into some goat hunting and working for some other outfitters in the spring and in the fall and just you know, been at it for, this will be, be my eighth season guiding hunts this year. So been good, man. A lot of, a lot of crazy experiences, a lot of really bad weather, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of, of, uh, you know, being intense with strange men I've never met for way too long. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the things that people don't think about as a guide. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I've read some really good articles, you know, in like outside magazine about you know mountain guide experiences and stuff like that but it's just something about being stuck in a tent with somebody for 10 days i mean you know you start running out of stuff to talk about or you start finding out things about people you never really wanted to know or or (laughs) what you didn't know you know yeah that's funny so was alaska on the radar specifically at all from what i heard in that uh story is just kind of like the opportunity came up and you went is it something you were looking to go to Alaska or is it kind of happenstance? It was, it's always, it had always been something that, you know, just been on my radar because I grew up hunting and fishing and, you know, obviously when you, when you read outdoor magazines and stuff as a kid and watch hunting shows, like Alaska is just the epicenter of everything outdoors. And, um, I had an opportunity to come up here when I was in the service, uh, for a project with the CBs and I actually, I missed out on it because the the guy I was supposed to replace his boots, his winter boots that they had issued were too small for me. So they just went and found somebody that had the same size feet and sent them instead. So I was, <laughs> what? Uh, that's your, yeah, that's your, that's your pretty typical military situation right there. You know, you can't, can't overthink it too much. So you just, <laughs> yeah, you go get the, the lesser qualified guy and send them cause the footwear is right. So, <laughs> I missed out on that, but it actually was a, was a project on Kodiak Island. And so Kodiak had been on my radar since then. And just, you know, it's kind of strange, kind of fate, I guess you could call it. I'd, I'd met some people along the way during my years and that had lived in Alaska or had hunted up here or fished up here. And just no one had ever said anything bad about it. And everyone that had ever been here seemed like the only thing they ever wanted to do was go back, you know? So um, when the opportunity came, I, I just jumped on it, but it wasn't, it wasn't my, my goal at the time to get to Alaska right out the door, you know, yeah. just 
liked the job and Kodiak popped up and I called Ken, the guy that owned the Yamaha shop here. And he was, uh, he was an old mid, he was a Midwest kid and, uh, you know, moved up here a long time ago after he got out of the air force. So we instantly had something in common and he was an equipment operator like I was, but in the air force. And so, yeah, man, I just, I sold all my tree stands and everything I had in my storage unit, like everything that was not going to help me get by up here, (laughs) just loaded up my truck and, and, and headed out and Mm -hmm. uh, never, never looked back really. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that about the the military exercise up there. I heard since I had been there and had no idea. I can't remember where I heard it, but uh, I guess there's some like it's pretty standard for some units to do a specific course or something up there in Kodiak, right? Yeah. So there's a there's a SEAL team um, uh, base here, and they basically do what's called oh man, like the worst thing you can think of: cold weather exposure. So right. they basically get these guys that are going into the SEAL teams and they bring them up here and they do like nighttime mountain navigation. So basically going out and doing the one thing I tell everybody that hunts, hunts here not to do, which is move <laughs> around in the dark. Yeah. And then they also do um, heavy weather in their boats. So they'll actually wait until they get some like gnarly wind and bad sea state and they take those guys out and just beat them up in their boats. Uh, they put them in the water, um, you know, severe cold weather exposure. They get them wet. They, you know, they make them dry out and get warm again. I mean, it's, I know some of the guys that have instructed over here and some of the things that they put those guys through, man, it's just, I can't even imagine the the mental fortitude it takes to just keep going and not tap out. But yeah, that's, that's Kodiak. I mean, you know, you can, if you look for it, you don't have to look real hard. You can find the worst possible situation you could put yourself into pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to look too hard. <laughs> pretty much all you got to do is not take some clothes with you and you can be in a bad way pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> I want to um, dive into just some like rapid fire type questions just to like get to know you better. I mean, we hung out obviously on our hunt and a little bit since then, but um, this doesn't have to be Kodiak specific, but it's certainly welcome to be, but like what it for you personally, whether it's a guide and your guiding experience or just what you would do personally hunting, what is your favorite animal to hunt? Oh man. Um, blacktail deer, sick of blacktail here. Just it's, it's the most fun I think you can have. I mean, they're just such a cool animal. Like we talked about before and, you know, hunting them here on the Island, especially when the, when the herd size is way up and and there's just a ton of animals and you've got time. That's the biggest challenge for me is just time because I'm so wrapped up with guiding and transporting. I hardly ever get time. So when I do get a four or five day window when I can actually go out and camp and, you know, be out there looking at different deer, you know, finding a specific deer that I want to pursue. It just, it's really exciting. Um, I like to bow hunt, so bow hunting opportunities can be really good. Uh, probably my second favorite thing to do is chase goats. I mean, it's it's a lot of work and it's extreme, but it just getting up there in that high alpine with those animals is, you know, it's totally different than chasing blacktails. And yeah. it's, you know, everything everything has its own deal that's really cool about it and really terrible about it, you know, at the same time. And 
coming out really heavy is is rewarding but it sucks man it just grinds you down and it's not for everybody that's for sure would kodiak be your favorite place to hunt then just in general of all the places you've been yeah it has been um i you know it's a toss-up like me and steven talked about this new zealand i i was fortunate enough to go to new zealand and and uh get around with a buddy of mine that lives there and i just i really enjoyed that man it's you know it's actually a lot like kodiak and uh the weather's just way better for the most part mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no bears and there's no snakes and spiders or you know anything it's just it's cool and the people are cool and there's lots of opportunities they don't have you know any restrictions there's basically no laws regarding hunting in new zealand um and the country's just it's kind of the same it's rugged and it's challenging and uh you know you, same thing on the south island you can you can find some places where it's not hard to get in a bad situation you know um but that's fun i mean mountain hunting to me is is as good as it gets for someone that wants a challenge what is uh what's like a story of a close call or like you said before like in kodiak you can get in trouble you don't have to look too hard what's the story of a close call or like some dangerous moments in the field again that could be a personal hunt of yours or a time is you know you were guiding with a client but what comes to mind there because guys you know you think alaska and wilderness and bears and weather and everything you mentioned um how does that hit home for you in terms of a close call? Yeah. I mean, I kind of hit the nail on the head, you know, with all that, it just, I, I think most people, their, their first, uh, first instinct is to automatically think of that bears would be the problem, but it's not, it's really weather and traveling related. Um, I've had some really scary airplane flights when, uh, you know, just, just trying to get to a place and it's, it's, the wind's a different direction when you get there, but you're there and you go ahead and try it. And, uh, you know, I've had some, had some pretty pucker moments, you know, seat sucker moments where you're coming in on an approach and it's just like by the sixth time you're thinking about why are we even attempting this? If it's, if it didn't go down the first or second time, you know, and, but you know, these guys up here that, that I fly with, um, especially like guys at Island air and, you know, Eric Howard and those guys, they're, first class and you know they want to go home at the end of the day too so you don't come across that you know that stupid factor where guys are going to do something that they don't think the plane's capable of or they're capable of but yeah so travel air travel um and then weather i mean i've had some really really close calls with not necessarily losing guys but getting in a bad in a bad way where you know we got wet river crossings can always be sketchy um you know i was telling you on that goat hunt last year before you guys came out we found a pack a rifle a spotting scope and a drainage you know and we never did find out what the situation was on that how that stuff got lost you know we just could only assume that someone was making a crossing and got washed away or you know camped in a bad spot and the river came up overnight and took camp away but yeah i had Say, I'd say probably my scariest moment. I was doing a crossing. Uh, the goat, the goat areas here are mainly divided by drainages. So you know, it's a drainage, a range, that, a mountain range that has goats, and then into another drainage, and that's the unit. And uh, we had had a bunch of rain. We were going up this canyon, and the water was coming up. Like you could visually see, you know, what the water rising. You know, not necessarily flash flood, but coming up a couple of inches every hour as we were going up through there and problem was is that 
the tag we had was for the unit on the other side of the drainage. But you could only go up the left side of the drainage. And when we got to the point where we had to cross, the water had came up to the point where it was less than desirable. And uh, the guy that I had with me, he was a little guy, and which actually ended up working out to his advantage, kind of. Um, <laughs> we decided that we needed to cross because we knew that the, it was going to keep raining. And we made it about half way better way to say it kind of in over his head you know and and he made it about two-thirds of the way and just the water just kind of overtook him and washed him down and um i i got to the beach fast enough and dropped my pack and i ran down probably 10 or 15 yards and kind of like grabbed him about 10 feet before he went underneath an over overhang like a rock outcropping over the creek and just like grabbed him by the back of his pack and threw him on the bank and and uh yeah it was it was sketchy man i had to like get camp set up right there it was getting dark you know got his clothes off got him in his bag basically put the tent up around him um and then it just continued to pour i think we got like 12 inches of rain in like 10 hours and it was just a raging torrent we were just in this canyon on this little piece of land that stuck out you know and and big boulders were like going by all night and i was getting up like every 30 minutes and checking a stick i had a stick stuck in the side and i was just like okay if, if it overcomes that then we're gonna have to climb up this cliff and and spend the night just hanging on this cliff you know but just never not never got past my little stick and got up like first daylight and, and uh, Tom was the guy's name and got, you know, kind of got Tom dried out and got some fresh clothes on him and we packed everything up and got out of there. But man, it was a, it was an interesting deal. Uh, couldn't go back down the drainage to get out, killed a goat way back up in there. It took us like two and a half days to walk out with a goat and just, you know, had to really adapt and overcome, which wow. some hardships from our normal deal, which is just kill a goat, walk back down the, the drainage and it's not a big deal, you know, but. Yeah, it was it was scary. You make goat hunting sound easy. Kill a goat and walk down the drainage. Yeah, that's, that's usually the deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> What's the longest you've ever had to spend in a tent with you know just weather being socked in? Uh, six days. Six, six days. Day. Without, yeah, without getting out. Yep. Gosh, I was actually a hunt that I did for myself. Um, I had a guy from Anchorage that came down that I'd met and. Uh, we were, we were going to chase goats with our bows and we got dropped off in a high mountain lake by super cub. And, um, yeah, just had like one decent day, spotted some goats, had a good plan for the next day and checked the weather. And, um, it sounded like it was going to deteriorate pretty quick and man, it did. It, it started blowing like 65, 70. I mean, I think it was probably gusting close to a hundred. It was blowing rocks around and, uh, we just were in a good spot for the tent because we could build kind of a rock wall around the one side that the wind was coming from and, uh, you know, save the tent. Luckily we, we had a, had a good enough tent that would hold up to it, but yeah, just zero, zero visibility, snow, wind, just could not get out and get around other than to go, you know, do the duty. And even that was, uh, that was pretty sketchy in itself. What tent was that? Do you recall the model? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a Hilleberg Alec. Uh, two man. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've only ran, I, I ran a couple of different 
tents, three season tents when I first started. And uh, my actual first first goat hunt I ever did guided, I had a, like a marmot three season tent and the weather just went to absolute shit on us. I had this big guy, his name was Noog. He was from uh, Georgia, the country. And so he had a heavy, really heavy uh, Russian accent. And um, we got a goat on the second day, I believe. And it wasn't a real big goat, but the guy, he was like, I'm done, get me out of here. So we get this goat, get back to the tent. And then uh, I, I checked the weather and it sounded like it was going to get really bad really quick. And it was already starting to snow. And this guy's like, we'll go down the mountain. I'm like, no man, like we need to get in the tent. Like it's going to get bad because he barely got up there. I had to, I ended up packing his pack for him and going back and getting him and then kind of leapfrogging all the way up into base camp and spike camp. So, you know, he just wasn't, he wasn't real savvy about being on those tight trails and up high like that. So I knew he wasn't going to be good getting down in the dark. So we set, set down and Kind of got everything situated, and it's blowing probably 60, just snowing sideways, and he had been fighting me for like an hour about going down the hill, and finally I just kind of like put my foot down. I was like, we are not going down, and then, you know, like two hours into this snowstorm, he kind of wiggles his face out of the sleeping bag, and he's like, hey, buddy, it's a good thing we not go down the mountain. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, now on, I listen to you, everything you say, you know? Like, <laughs> But yeah, I got up the next morning to like bluebird skies and zero wind and like three feet of fresh snow. Kind of got everything uncovered and packed up and slid down the mountain. Took us took us a full day to get down, but you know we just took our time and stayed safe. But yeah, yeah I, after that, I was like, okay, four season tent top. That's going to the top of the list. <laughs> right. What we've talked about that because uh, you know we did obviously the Kodiak in November we did um, the Alaska caribou hunt in September and learned some lessons there on tent specifically is you know it's one thing to make recommendations for down here in the lower forty eight but you know there's that next level of gear that can be needed for Alaska and the variable conditions there what comes to mind beyond a tent of like you know maybe a guys hunted down here lower forty eight has some experience has some gear but you would like kind of caution of, okay, up here you need to revisit maybe the gear you've used down there and pay special attention to what, like beyond that tent, what else comes to mind? As far, as far as, you know, the gear outside of your, your boots and what you're wearing. I mean, you know, the sleeping bag and sleeping pad is a huge deal because um, obviously we do get a lot of rain from what I've seen and what I've used the synthetic fill bags. They're just, they're, they're way far superior as far as drying your stuff out, you know? So like you can crawl in your bag and all your stuff on soaking wet. And within probably three hours, you can dry it out in a, in a synthetic bag and still have plenty of heat retention to, to survive, you know? So mm -hmm. I'd say, I'd say that's a big one. And then sleeping pads. I've had a, I've had a few people kind of, skimp on a pad and just bring like you know the the thermarest little foam deal and you know they're pretty uncomfortable at night and i that's one thing i kind of i don't pay as much attention to on the weight i use an x-ped um and it's it's like the it's like what you'd use in a swimming pool almost you know the old mm -hmm. air mattresses you put air mats you'd use for a swimming pool but a little extra weight but super tough um lots of they're like three inches thick. So there's plenty of airspace between you and the ground and you can kind of, you can kind of 
not be as picky as where you put your tent up because you can kind of get some comfort from that extra space. So even if there's some sticks or some rocks that, you know, you'd feel through the, the foam pads, you kind of get by with that with an air pad. Yeah. Gear wise, that's probably about the biggest thing for someone that's going to camp. But I mean, we talked a lot about boots and next to skin stuff, base layers. I mean, that's that's something that guys in the lower 48 probably aren't going to have you know, that are going out whitetail hunting and, you know, just doing the average tree stand hunt and going home at night. Um, cotton kills. That's kind of the, the, the written rule that all guides tell people that are going to come to Kodiak, especially is just don't bring cotton. It just doesn't dry out and it has no heat retention. You know, just, yeah. Cotton, cotton's a big one. That's all the with all the wools and synthetics that are out now. I mean, there's just way too many good options. Um, that are reasonably priced to not go ahead and buy some some good stuff to come here with as a guide like beyond gear what what mistakes do you see clients make whether that's in preparation before the hunt it's you know port planning it's underestimating the demands of the hunt like what are those yeah what are those mistakes that you see made or um you know just lessons basically that can be learned from from others' mistakes that you've uh, experienced as a guide? All, all of it. They make all the mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> it, Help us. It's, uh, I mean, it goes kind of all over. Uh, you know, a problem that we really struggle with is just tags. Um, you know, especially with the deer hunting for non-residents because you have to have the locking tag your license and the harvest tickets and i i feel like some people either they're they're not they're not paying attention or they're not understanding what guides are telling them when it comes to to buying what they need because you know if you haven't done it then you just don't know you know it's it's one of those things where the where being ignorant of something can kind of hurt hurt you when you get to the field because if you don't do it if you know if you're not meeting your your guy here in kodiak going down to the, the store with them and purchasing your tags right then and there and making sure that you got, you have your harvest tickets, you have your locking tag, you've got the proper license and then you fly to the field. And then all of a sudden, you know, Oh, Hey, I, I don't, I don't have harvest tickets. You know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that really hymns up a hunt right out of the gate. So I really, I really try to tell people, Hey, pay attention to what you need. Um, make the phone calls, call fishing game talk to those guys that's what they're there for they're usually pretty bored anyway so you know they've got the answers for that stuff and uh, make sure you bring all your your essential permitting with you before you go to the field you know mm-hmm. most of that stuff's all done online anyway now so you can get all that stuff mailed to you before you you get here yeah it's definitely one thing that's confusing about about alaska is there's just a few extra steps there that i think you know guys in the lower 48 aren't used to uh, you know, obviously in Idaho, I just have a, a license and a paper tag that you, you know, then tape to the antlers and up there you've got your harvest ticket. And then it's so confusing because you print it out and they print out like five of them or something like that. I only like, oh, got three tags. What, what I got five harvest tags. And tickets. you have to use them in order. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely yeah, a few weird things there. You're only allowed yeah. to shoot three deer, but yet you have to have all five harvest tickets. I mean, it, some of it's just kind of ridiculous, you know, and it, it, and it, makes it confusing for people it really you know you can't for a guy sitting down 
looking at these five harvest tickets, knowing he can only shoot three deer. He's like, well, I don't need these last two, you know, and it's, well, you do, you that information, you know, or, or yeah. line on that. You'd never know unless somebody told you. So that's why I always encourage people to, to get in touch with fishing game and, you know, call other, other guides or outfitters or people that have been there. You know, I think it's great that you guys do this podcast because this is the kind of information that people will get and make, make note of and know that they need this stuff before they come up here. Yeah. That call to fishing games is worth it just for assurance. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of silly not to, like you said, they're, they're more than willing to help and they're a phone call away and just kind of covering your bases. What, no matter what you read online or what podcast you listen to, just do that. Yep. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's always a great step, you know, to be, to be prepared. And, and yeah, I guess the, the other thing I would say too is, uh, you know, just spending time with your gear is a, is a huge, huge thing. Um, boots, especially breaking boots in. I've seen guys show up here that have got $2,000 worth of brand new stuff and have never put it on until they left the hotel in Kodiak to get on the plane, you know, and that's just, it, it's just not a good way to go about it. You know, you got to break in boots. You got to put miles in, in your boots and get them ready. I mean, the physical side of it, yeah, it's great to be in great shape, to be in, you know, sheep shape or mountain shape, but really it's, I mean, more mental fortitude for most most people I've guided. I've, I've had some guys show up that I thought would probably die on the hunt, you know, just because they were in such terrible shape, whether it be <laughs> age or their diet or, you know, just their lifestyle, but man, the guys just would not quit and i've had guys show up that looked like they could probably go out and do a freaking iron man and just i mean just bitch out you know just get wet and get tired and just i've had guys whine and like oh man this snow's gonna be this hard you know it's like damn dude i mean (laughs) this, this is a real deal like did you do any research on this it's just you know did you talk to anybody about what you needed to do and i think just because people are in and okay, beach shape, you know, they got beach muscle muscles. They think that they're going to come up here and crush it. Man, Kodiak has a, just got a way of showing you who you really are when it comes to your mental fortitude. Yeah. What about shooting? Do you find that like, take your goat hunts, for example, you're in mountainous terrain, different country. I'm sure a lot of that for, um, you know, for the clients has been rifle hunting, are guys truly practiced up with that? Do they truly understand their effective range? Can they make the shot under pressure? What do you kind of see that go wrong or, you know, advice that you would have for guys who are looking at a hunt like that on the shooting aspect? I'd, I'd say on the shooting aspect, um, for the most part, it it's, uh, it's pretty good. I, I think something to me that it's kind of started to evolve is this long range deal, you know, um, guys are showing up with these crazy rigs that they're long range shooting with, uh, that, you know, are 10, 12, 13 pounds. Some of these guns, um, they're, they bench shot them. They've just shot off the bench and, you know, oh, I'm, I'm good to a thousand, you know, it's like, yeah, that's great, man. On a bench and perfect conditions. And, you know, but when you get here and it's, you're on the spine of a mountain and there's, you know, a 200, 300 foot vertical drop within two feet of where we're at, you know, and you forget the fundamentals of what you're doing, like to check your turret. That happened to me this year. I had a guy that was just deathly afraid of heights. He could shoot. He was well-practiced. He knew his gun. He knew his equipment. I mean, I I was really confident that if I got him on a goat, it was going to be, you know, dead on, but 
he, he conveyed to me that he was really scared of heights and it showed when we first got up there. Um, got him on a really, really great goat, just an awesome situation. Goat was just bedded down, perfect broadside. We were way up high. It took me forever to get him up there, but he got him there. I had him calm down. We, we sat there and dry fired on this goat like 10 times, probably got 15 minutes worth of just breathing time, you know, made sure everything was really good to go. And he just, he shot over this goat three times and the goat got up and ran off. And, uh, I just, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I mean, it was a 180 yard shot. And then he, he looked and his, his elevation turret on the scope was turned up like, like six clicks, man. You know, he was just, didn't check a zero, didn't, didn't pay attention to what his, his adjustments were on his ballistic turrets and between, between going, you know, starting the stock and where we got set up, he just didn't check it. And it was something that I kind of overlooked because I don't shoot ballistic turrets. You know, I'm, I'm just an old VX three, 10 power scope guy, you know, and it just, it, it was a bummer, you know I mean? It was great. And he was, he was dude, just devastated. Like he overcame some serious fears of heights. I mean, I had to kind of drag him around a couple times and there, you know, there it was, we, we did what we were supposed to do and got on this great, great Billy and, and just biffed it, you know, and, uh, just by the grace of God, man, like two hours later, we ended up killing that goat. It, it walked almost a mile straight away from us. I stayed on it. Um, I, I ran over the hill and found him and, and realized he wasn't injured or anything, you know, and, and, uh, felt like it was real clean, clean miss and watched the goat walk down the spine of the range. And then it just, for whatever reason, quit walking away and turned around and walked straight back to us and we got set up and got a shot and got him killed, you know? And so the, the second time you didn't make the mistake, you knew where he was at and I got him in good range and he made like a 480 yard shot and just smoked this thing. So, wow. so yeah, in the heat of the moment, you know, you can forget the basics, the fundamentals of checking, checking zero and stuff like that. I think that's kind of something I've started to see with guys that are bringing the long, long range guns that have ballistic turrets. Mm-hmm. You know, is is getting it bumped or you know not not making a hundred percent sure that they're where they need to be so that that's one of the things in goat hunting i've seen i've seen some guys you know i've had some guys that wanted to shoot deer at like 800 to a thousand yards and i'm just it's it's just not the same here i mean you can lose an animal in a hundred yards here i mean it, it never seen again you know like a good shot smoke them they go down, you walk a hundred yards and you're in a different country. You just, oh yeah. It changes that fast, you know? So I'm kind of, I'm not against it. I mean, there's definitely places where it's wide ass open and you can see, and a guy can sit there and walk another person in on where the deer was at, but, or, you know, goats, it's pretty clear. You know, you, if you shoot one at a long distance like that, you're going to see where it goes and it's not such a big deal, but yeah, I'm, I'm, that's something I'm a little cautious of. And I explain that to people, you know, Hey, if you want to shoot long range, that's great, but I'm going to try to get you in bow range with a rifle just because mm-hmm. that's, that's how I've always hunted. You know, you get as close as you can to be ethical. Yeah. Is that uh dry fire and something you'd like to practice? It is. That, yeah. It's actually on the animal, getting to calm down, dry fire. If it's possible, I like to do that. I like to, yeah. you know, just, just to make sure that trigger controls there that, you know, that they're not jumpy, that they're not going to just, you know, get in, get one in the scope and just, whack the trigger and, and make a bad shot. And that's more for really for my confidence that I'm not going to have to back them up, you know, or, or 
shoot an animal after someone shoots because their their shot was was marginal but mm-hmm. yeah i think it gives the it gives the hunter a little extra boost in confidence too so it's something i've tried to practice over the years and, and tried to implement but we always shoot before we go to the field on the hunt and uh you know i can usually tell pretty quick how comfortable a person is with their gun i mean i've, I've had guys show up that had actually never shot the guns that they brought um i've had i've had people order guns from Gunworks, never shoot it and show up and like fight me tooth and nail about shooting the gun um had a guy one time you know he's like ah my gun's guaranteed to a thousand yards i'm like yeah but have you shot it do you know that it's you know i was like i don't care what it's guaranteed to we're shooting the gun shot his gun at 100 yards and it was eight inches low i mean you know it it just happens and and things that happen in transit and you just you have to know so that's just one thing that we always require is people shoot before they go to the field to know that their guns are one gonna fire and two that they're they're close to where they need to be yeah we had wasn't that mics that was a little bit off when we got there steve yeah. 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 We, yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was it? We debated going and shooting. Like, oh, let's go shoot. And then, we, yeah, go shoot. And Mike's gun was off at 100 yards. And it was quite a bit, four inches yeah. or something. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, we sat up there and put quite a few rounds to that thing to get it back to where it needed to be. Yeah. yeah. Let's, um, yeah, let's talk about some deer. Um, I guess let's start with, like, in your opinion, you know, Steve and I recapped the hunt. We did a couple episodes um, talking about our Kodiak hunt from November. And for listeners that want to go back and check that out, those episodes 201 and 202. Um, just, like, high-level question for you, Rafe, on how would you advise guys or kind of break down the opportunity for Sitka Blacktail and Kodiak and how it changes throughout the season? So, you know, whether you're going early in August um all the way through the season kind of the different periods all the way into you know shoot late november at that point um those are obviously different hunts on the end of that spectrum but like give people a high level idea of what to expect with those different seasons and kind of how it changes yeah so it's it's a really long season so it starts in august and ends in december and uh the the biggest thing is i would say is weather and vegetation so like when you guys were here in November, we had pretty much already, you know, all the alder had dropped its its foliage. The the ferns were pretty much laid down. Well, that's not the case in August. I mean, it's literally like walking through a jungle and the deer are all up high. Um, they basically stay in the alpine and just forage and exist up high until about mid-September to mid-October they'll start to kind of come down uh the bucks will start to really you know rub and start to kind of not really I don't want to say pre-rut that's not really a good way to say it but start to kind of travel some avenues where they're you know kind of marking some brush and kind of beating up some some alders and you know rubbing their velvet off and all that but yeah if you wanted to come early you just have to really be prepared to to wade through that that jungle of vegetation um and you guys can probably have a little input on this. And I know you have about just how, how tough it is without a lot of vegetation, you know, and how hard it is to see in that first, first thousand feet, you know, until you start getting out of that alder line and getting to where it's a little more open. Like if you can imagine that with like full on foliage, you know, all those alders having full complement of leaves, 
the ferns being six feet tall, you know, pushy. It just, it's pretty miserable. <laughs> I'm kind of insulted that you said we didn't do with a lot of vegetation because I don't feel the same way. I know what you're saying, though. <laughs> no, was, if, if like, all that was yeah, greened the, out, oh, geez. I can't, yeah, um, yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, that some of those places where we, I mean, it was like every two steps was a cuss word because uh, yeah. you're just so frustrated. And, and it said that was as good as it gets. I just can't imagine in August having to go through that. That would be. Uh, I think I'd made the suggestion on one of those podcasts. Like, I there's no, I don't see how you could hunt from the beach with no. three tags and like trek through that on a daily basis. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't see how that's possible. Yeah, I mean, uh, it seems like it makes the most sense, Rafe. If you want to hunt August, like, get flown in and drop high and stay high, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, and I would say, you know, the vast, the vast, vast majority of guys that come that time of year, August and early September, they're going to hire an air taxi service to fly them in on floats to a high mountain lake, you know, and they're going to, they're going to be up there in the Alpine when they step off the plane, and uh, they're going to stay there until they're done. You know, yeah. they're not going to come back down to the beach. And, and really, the only way you're going to be forced to do that is if weather just deteriorates to the point where, you know, there's no way they can come get you. You know, or if you're running out of food or you're having bear problems, um, that's, you know, that's kind of the other thing, too. In that that season, that early, early season, if there's not a lot of salmon around or or there's a really good berry year like last year, um we just had an epic berry crop. So the blueberries were just super, super thick and all the ground berries. So the bears were up high eating berries, you know? So I had talked to a few guys that had got flown into high lakes and they were like, man, the bear trap was ridiculous, you know? And it's, it's not that they're, it's not that they're really bothering the hunters as much, but they're just there, you know? So at night you're hearing bears walk by your camp, you know, or you're getting the occasional bear that walks through and steals a bag of meat. Um, you know, when you're skinning deer up there, there's bears around like watching you do it and then they're on your gut pile the next day. So that's definitely something to think about. And unfortunately it's not something anyone can forewarn you about until like August 1st, (laughs) (laughs) because that's when the berries get ripe. You know, that's when they're, they go up there and start doing that. Mm. But on epic salmon runs, you hardly ever see bears in the Alpine when the, when the fish are really thick. I mean, they're all down there in the rivers. They're all down low doing their thing. I mean, just you rarely see bears up high when there's a ton of fish around. What do the deer do for for cover? If, kind of remembering right, there's not a whole lot of brush up there high. There's um, not, man. They yeah. uh, they just kind of bed down between the hummocks. You know, mm-hmm. on on I've been up up high early in the year when there's been just you know crazy wind and rain, and they just they're kind of out doing their thing and they just kind of bed down on the hummocks or on the leeward side of the, the hills. That's the thing about here is, you know, I, I said this to you guys, there's food, water and cover everywhere. Mm. So it's not like out in Kansas, you know, where you got to go find a ditch that's got some cover and some water, or, you know, or, or catch deer on their way to a food source here. It's everywhere. The whole Island is food, water and shelter. So it's really not that they have a pattern or anything. They just kind of get where they're comfortable and where they feel comfortable. And you know, they, they just are where they are. On those earlier hunts, um, you know, obviously bears are an issue in particular as it comes to meat. But even with weather, advice for keeping meat, you know, if you're flown in there for seven days, do you recommend like the citric acid deal or just any tips on meat care for those earlier warmer hunts? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, the I, I've heard of some guys having really good luck with the citric acid. Um, game bags are just, you know, the biggest part of that. And just buying good quality game bags that aren't cotton or linen. You know, uh, the synthetic bags that like Tag makes. Uh, I think there's a company called like Caribou Bags or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. They make really, really good tough bags. And uh, yeah, man, it's just keeping it dry coming up with different ways to you know whether it be a tarp or piling up rocks to get them up off the ground just keeping your meat dry is a huge deal um if you're flying into a spot a bear fence probably isn't a bad deal to put around your meat not so much your tent but you know around your meat um we lost some meat to a bear this fall because we didn't have a fence um we got most of it back but you know Still, it was just one of those things where we never even heard the bear. We never saw the bear. Just got up in the morning. And we were missing like three bags of meat, you know, but she had only gone about probably 50, 60 yards from camp and buried it. So I went and unburied it and took it back and I had to run her off, which wasn't a huge deal, you know, but yeah, meat care is really big. The state's really big on that. So, you know, if, if troopers land, land, would land on a spot and you weren't taking care of your meat or you hadn't recovered what was required, you'd probably get a citation for that. Um, and it's good. I mean, there's no reason not to try and do your best to, to preserve your, your harvest, man, because it's some of the best venison you'll ever eat. And it's a shame to leave any of it really. Yeah. I think if, if anyone's listening, don't run a bear off that took your meat. Yeah, I know. No, I don't be like Ray. That. Yeah. <laughs> do that. I, I didn't really run her off. I just stole it back, and then I, her I in saw the her in ran. distance. And yeah, pretty much just kind of like she was young, you know, so it wasn't like a big old bear that would have probably challenged me for it. So I just I scared her pretty good, and she ran off, and it wasn't that big deal. She was pretty fat and happy off fish anyway, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But, yeah, that's, that's something else I'll mention too is, um, you know, one of the biggest mistakes people make here and actually create a bear encounter situation is, you know, they'll shoot a deer early in the day, leave it, go on and hunt the rest of the day to try to kill a second animal and then come back to the animal they initially, initially harvested and a bear had claimed it, you know, well, now you've got to deal with this, you know, you've got to make a decision to, to either, you know, walk away from it, which is what you should do, or, you know, maybe make yourself big enough and present, enough that you might might have luck scaring a bear off but not likely so what one thing i always recommend to guys that you know if they if they choose to do that either go ahead and get that animal in game bags and hang it up high enough that you can see or if you're not going to go ahead and deal with it right away you know tie some leg tie a leg up tie its head up you know push it up into an alder to where you can see it drag it to a spot that's open so you can see it you know that way when you're coming back to the kill site if the if the game bags aren't there, if the the deer's not hanging in the tree like it was, you know, if it's moved from where you left it, then you know a bear's been there, and it's likely that they're still there, and you can just kind of be, you know, be a little more aware of your surroundings and what's going on because that's generally the way that human bear confrontations occur here. You know, it's 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 very rare to you just walk into a bear and have one, you know, beat the shit out of you. It's it's more guys trying to get their deer back from a bear that's claimed to kill and then the bears just had enough and they ended up mauling people you know that's that's pretty much the way it goes you know and we killed that first deer on our trip uh mike shot a first buck i think that was the first day we hunted and we hung it and we were certainly 
like exactly what you said, we wanted visibility on it as we were approaching it. So we were trying to kind of glass it and make sure it was undisturbed and kind of approach that area with some caution, which thankfully there's no sign of anything. Um, but yeah, at least for that first one, it was like, yeah, we were thinking through that for sure. Yeah. And it's something, you know, it's easy. It's easy to not think about that when you're out there because you know, you get excited and especially in the fall because it's kind of a short day. And if you get one early and you want to try and continue to hunt, you know, you got to kind of just go. So it's easy to just, you know, throw a locking tag on an antler and walk away from it and keep going up the hill. And, and, uh, that's, you know, that's something that some people just, they kind of lose in the, in the hustle and, uh, they forget to do those, those easy steps, you know, or even like flagging tapes, a good thing. I, you know, I always tell people, Hey, if you, if you leave something somewhere, you know, have some flagging tape and tie it up as high as you can. Something I like to do is I'll actually like rope over a branch on an alder if I can and then tie flagging tape and let it pop back up to where you can see it. That way it's a good, it's a good wind indicator. So, you know, you, you can see which way the wind's going at the kill site, you know, you know, to go downwind and walk back to it. And, and that way, you know, you've kind of got a presence and, uh, you know, that bear, if he's there, he's going to smell you before you get to the kill site. And a lot of times that's enough to run them off. You know, they don't, they just don't like humans. They don't like having that interaction with people. And the majority of the time they're going to run away. But if you, yeah, if you find one that's claimed to kill, especially if they buried it, you should probably just count that as a loss and walk away. Wow. Uh, that's a great tip, man, on the flagging tape. Not only, uh, you said visibility, but using that to read wind. That's awesome. And I've done that before. I actually, actually got a, we, we killed a bear one spring. We, we had, uh, glassed him and he was on a, a winter elk kill and, uh, we did a stalk and we actually busted him out of there, but we tied up, tied up some flagging tape real close to where he had been. And we just kind of waited a couple days and, and he came back in there and got back on the kill site. And, uh, you know, the whole time we were making the stalk, we, we were able to check the wind by the flagging tape that we had hung. So we knew that we were pretty good and we actually got in there to like 30 yards and ended up taking that bear and he was an absolute giant, you know? So it was something that was cool. Obviously you're not going to get to do that every time, but, um, it was, it was really neat to have that, that tool, you know, to make sure that your wind was good the whole time you were on the stock. So, uh, yeah, getting back to kind of that, that high level look at the deer, we talked about some of the early stuff and then transitions to, you know, we were there the first week in November. Would you say that's typically kind of like still pre-rut, peak of the rut? Does that just vary based off of the year? Um, you know, what does kind of late October, early to mid-November look like for deer hunting? It's, uh, I, I personally think that it's a little challenging in October. Um, the, the deer, they're kind of just going wherever they want to go. You know, so you can go up high and you're probably going to have an encounter. But then again, you know, if the vegetation's not completely down, you're still going to be struggling to get around. You're, you're going to have a really hard time glassing in the alders and the hillsides because even though some of that stuff's starting to die and brown out, it's still on the limbs. Um, and that pretty much changes every year. There's really not a, I couldn't give you a window when it all drops because, you know, one good storm, one good windstorm here after that stuff dies off, it'll rip everything down. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've, I've been glassing from, from the cabin there in Larson Bay and not been able to see nothing and then have a two day window, of 60, 70 mile an hour winds. And then it's just like completely different. You know, you can see everything because all the vegetation's gone. 
Um, so October can be kind of tough. Um, that, that probably late October into the first week of November, those bucks are starting to get real ruddy. You're starting to see big groups of them together, um, kind of traveling. And then in November, you know, the, the second, third week, it's just full on, on into the, the last week of November. Um, but as a progression, you're just losing daylight every day. So a few minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but seven minutes over the course of, you know, five days is that's a half hour off your day that you're, you're losing to, to darkness. So it's something to think about the later in the year, the shorter your days are, um, you know, if you're going to be going on a, on a lodge base hunt, like you guys did, you know, obviously you gotta, you gotta get out there. You gotta get back down to the pickup site. So it's, you know, it's a quick day. Eight hours is, is not much time. Yeah. They went by fast Two two hours of busting brush and yeah. a little bit of time to hunt and then yeah. two hours back. Like it didn't leave much. Yeah. It doesn't leave a big window, you know? Um, and that's why I, 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 I'd, I'd, I suggest, you know, people take a look at camping out um you know it, it's just kind of a game changer because you're out there it definitely throws some variables in there as far as gear that you need to bring um you know again meat care having having animals having bears around with with meat and camp you know on a spike camp but there again you're just getting some more time so if you're really focused on wanting to kill a huge buck you know or you know you're, you're worried about that score or trying to put something in the books as top 10 i mean camping out is probably going to be your best bet yeah we did it the easy way we came back to the lodge and had jerry cook for us that's pretty nice <laughs> <Yeah, that's laughs> try it out drink drink some whiskey I, I wouldn't call it a gentleman's hunt but it's pretty damn close <laughs> yeah it's pretty awesome <laughs> you're working we were working hard when we were out there we just got to let's just say we got to recover well yeah yeah it was a good recovery you know and and having the option to go fishing is awesome too man like you yeah. know like being able to say hey i'm i'm tired i want to go do something else and go out and catch some fish it's just it's a really cool way to to do it and you know it's there's definitely there's there's a few outfits that do that here there's some you know there's some boat guys boat based hunts where you can go and stay on a boat the whole time and you know, that's, that's a cool way to see some country and, but you're same thing, you know, you're, you're only getting that small window by the time you get dropped off and, um, you know, being back to the beach to get picked up and go back to the boat. It's kind of the same thing, you know? I mean, what's the big advantage to that boat based hunt? Is it just mobility? Because from like, from my experience, the hunt we did with you guys, you know, we're, we're hopping in the boat every morning to go to the spot, get dropped off and go hunt. We still had plenty of flexibility on, multiple different areas that we could hunt because you're taking us there each morning with the boat, but compared yeah. to, you know, staying on a boat full time for that week, is it just being able to have more options? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, in my personal opinion, I think that the boat based hunt, um, just as far as, as seeing some country is, is kind of a, a cool option because, you know, obviously you're, you're a hundred percent mobile. Um, there are some limiting factors, obviously weather being one. I mean, there's some places that you just can't get to on certain, certain weather, um, events, you know, the wind here can be really, really, really crazy. And it just causes some really gnarly sea states. So sometimes those boats have to just really go and hide, you know, and that can really limit you to where you have a good spot to go hunt, you know, just access for one, 
Um, I know some, some guys that came and got on the boat and then, you know, they ended up staying on the boat, like, like not getting off the boat for four or five days just because they couldn't get to the beach safely, you know? So they, you're, you're staying on this big boat and it's a sanctuary. And then they take these little inflatables to the beach. Well, if there's, you know, if there's a five foot roller coming into the beach, man, it's just, you know, that's, that's like some SEAL team insertion stuff. It's just not, (laughs) it's not for most people. And yeah. uh, so there are limiting factors to that as well. You know, I think doing a lodge based deal like you guys did is, is great because even if it's windy, you know, even if it's raining like some bitch, you can still, you can still get on the hill and go hunt, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's fun too, because those guys usually, you know, they're, they're usually dropping a crab pot and doing some fishing along the way. So, you know, a little duck hunting and cast and blast type deal. So it's, you know, it's a good option for people that want to go that route. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I just need to do all three of them. That way I can speak from better experience. I think that's a good plan. It is. It is. You know, there's, there's some really great. And there again, you really want to do your research. And, uh, that's, that's kind of a a tip that, you know, I'd, I'd give people is if you contact an outfitter of any kind, whether they're lodge based, you know, water based, boat based, just try to get some references, you know, call some of the people that have been there and ask how their experience was because you really, you know, unfortunately in this industry, uh, and even in Alaska, there's people out there that are kind of hacks, man. You know, they, they don't really care. There's just a way for them to make money and, and they get to be outdoors, but they don't really care about a person's experience, you know, and they're not going to go the extra mile. And, uh, it sucks to come all the way up here and spend the money and go with someone like that. That's not going to make an effort to really, you know, take care of you. The only way to know is to call people that have been with them, you know, and and do that research and talk to people that got to go see it, you know, and hopefully they're honest with you about it. Yeah. Yep. If, uh, if guys are looking specifically for that combo to be able to go deer hunt and fish, which is, you know, what we did, is there an ideal time of year for that specifically? So we've talked about, you know, the pros and cons of hunting deer late or early and all that, but specifically for like that flexibility of hunting and fishing, what would you say is kind of an ideal time to consider? I would, I mean, honestly, probably the, the last two weeks of October and into November is, is really the ideal time to do that, you know, because you've got, you've got some options for waterfowling, um, fishing still really good. Um, you can, you know, the navigation of the terrain is a big deal. So you're not dealing with that vegetation. I don't really know anyone that does the boat, boat based hunts early in the year here. Um, and it's basically just because it's so hard to get from the beach to the Alpine. Where yeah. you're at. So it really limits people. I mean, there, there's some animals out there that just, you know, they'll hack through the brush. They don't give a shit. They're going to drag through that stuff and get up there. But I mean, for most people, man, it's super discouraging. I'm, I'm all about a challenge, but that, that shit just doesn't make any sense. Like, <laughs> it's bad. yeah, it's has, I, I can't imagine do it. Like having three tags and, and like camping on the beach, busting through that. Like, I, I just don't, yeah. it wouldn't like be you fun. said, Steve, I mean, it, we're like no exaggeration to say we would start at the beach and we're trying to hike what, maybe a mile and a half. And a it would mile. take two hours. It legit yeah. would take two hours. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't, and apparently that wasn't the bad time. Yeah, I just can't. Yeah, that wasn't the bad time. I just don't think it's feasible. <laughs> in the yeah, 
if you yeah. uh, two Better. two or three guys you know nine deer tags a week-long yeah. hunt I, I can't see how that happens and I, yeah. I guess we should say too i don't know that we've like mentioned this explicitly enough if guys are just hearing the dread of us covering this country and <laughs> talking about how terrible it is the later you go like there are opportunities where you just flat out don't have to go through that like you can hunt low you could hunt essentially at the beach or not far within it uh so maybe hit on that rafe like you guys you know you're running your seasons through as you said like early december so the later you come you know, we could have killed deer not too far from the beach, but then you get into like mid-November, late November, there's guys that can come, get dropped off on the boat, and honestly not have to have a very physical hunt, but could fill some tags, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, especially during during the peak of the rut, you know, those those bucks are just pushing does everywhere, and the does are just kind of everywhere. Um, a lot of those deer come down out of the alpine, especially if it snows early in the season. You know, that's, I think, historically, through... <clears throat> you know, the sixties, seventies and eighties, that's kind of like what people really counted on was that those snowfalls that would push the deer down out of the Alpine. Um, we kind of saw that a little bit this year, uh, closer to town. We got some snow real early. And so some of the deer were coming down. Um, you just can't count on that from year to year. Kodiak's such a, such, such a finicky place when it comes to weather. You just not, there's no guarantee what it's going to do in that, that three or four week stretch, you know, so you can't, you can't really look back and say, Oh, well, you know, in, in 2000, there was like a record snowfall and all the deer were on the beach. I mean, you just can't really plan your trip to that. So I would say that, you know, that rut is the biggest thing. And, you know, if you, if you're not really physically capable or want to go do a really physical hunt, you can sit on the beach or not far from the beach and you're going to have deer encounters you know i mean if you do that for a six or seven day hunt you're you're gonna see a deer eventually you know and you're probably gonna see a decent buck walk by that you're gonna be able to get a chance at yeah when we were there i mean the deer were there it was does and smaller bucks and i'm sure there's probably some bigger bucks running down in it we just didn't have the patience that's not how we were trying to hunt it essentially right exactly yeah and and i think you know especially like we were talking about the boat based hunts um on on the boat based deal you know those guys probably get to some areas that don't get as much pressure. And, you know, so there, there's, there's a few places where there's just huge, huge beaches that run miles down the coast, you know, and they just get a lot of deer traffic. And, you know, I think on a boat base hunt or an airplane, you know, where you're, you're getting dropped off somewhere like that and, and essentially camping off those beaches where there's lots of deer traffic, you're not going to have to hunt real hard to, to have an opportunity. You know, I've, I've seen groups of deer in the fall while we were bear hunting that were, you know, I, I think the biggest group I've ever seen at one time was three. I quit counting at 300 and, you know, there was, and over half of those were bucks, you know, that's, it's probably close to a one-to-one ratio here, bucks to does. So there's just a lot of them. Yeah. Well, one thing that the, uh, just for reference for people, it's the deer hunting can be super finicky just depending on how bad the winters are, correct? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So so winter mortality is is, you know, by far and away the the biggest cause of of peaks and valleys in the deer population here. I mean, the hunting pressure only accounts for, you know, maybe maybe eight percent or something of deer fatalities in uh, on the island like this year. 
Wow. We've had a pretty aggressive winter, um, you know, big snowfalls, big cold spells, but we've had a really good deer population because we've had mild winters, you know, since, um, since 2012 really. And, uh, so the numbers were really high, you know, it's kind of been the talk of the town amongst the hunters is, oh, there's so many deer that are dead, but yeah, there are, but there was a lot of deer to die, mm. you know, and the deer right. that are still around are healthy, you know, um, I think it helps the gene pool at some of those deer that just aren't as in good a health. Um, some of the deer that just don't, you know, don't winter well, you, you kind of weed that out and you get deer that are a little more hardy deer, you know, does that are going to drop two fawns instead of just one, you know, it, it does come back pretty fast. Um, what are you up to this spring, man? I know you're, uh, as we record this, the whole COVID mess is going on, which is kind of shut down non-resident bear hunting, but you're going to get out and do some bear hunting for yourself, right? Yeah, I had a, I had a, a true gentleman's guiding opportunity. I was, I was going to go to the Southeast and, uh, and hunt for, uh, and guide for Keegan McCarthy. And he runs a, a big liveaboard vessel hunt based hunt, but you know they're they're operating off like 140 foot yacht and hunting coastal brown bears in the southeast so i was really excited about that but the old virus kind of put the kibosh on that whole deal so yeah i'm just um i'm kind of hanging out and and going out and glassing for bears on nice days and and trying to you know maybe maybe fill my own bear tag finally and and just kind of waiting to see how this whole covid deal plays out and see if we're gonna have a fishing season and then uh i'm hoping praying that fall is a go and and get back into doing some goats and some deer hunting in the fall and doing some transporting so that's what i'm looking forward to yeah i'm glad you mentioned uh glassing for bears i meant to come back and talk about optics um what do you personally run um, and you can, you know, you can kind of highlight the differences maybe between like your goat hunts versus the deer hunts, but just optics, uh, advice or suggestions. I know even on our hunt, Steve, almost every day we looked at that spotter and like, Oh, we should bring the spotter today. And we never did. Um, obviously that's, <laughs> yeah, that was for our hunt <laughs> and our goals, but talk through optics, um, for Kodiak, what you use. And again, maybe what you'd recommend for guys coming up. Personally, I uh, I started out with uh, all loophole optics, so I had a, a loophole spotter. I had the Mojave BX3 10 powers for binos, and I I ran those for two three years, and then I went ahead and spent the money and I bought uh, Leica binos and a Leica spotter. Um, I, I can honestly say that it was like night and day difference at twilight. So. So you really notice there's there's some really great glass out there, and I, you know you always hear the old oh always buy, you know the best you can afford. Well, I kind of say horseshit. Buy the best of the best that you can get it put on a credit card, whatever. Buy it one. <laughs> you know, just buy it one time and be done with it. And and there's there's a couple of reasons I say that because one, if you're buying you know Swarrow um, Leica, Zeiss, you know, the high end vortex stuff. It's, it just lasts, you know, it lasts longer. It's the best glass you can get. So it's durable. Um, and it, it has resale value. So if you ever decide that, you know, you don't, you don't need that spotter anymore, you can get some of your money back. Whereas you, you buy some of these mid range optics, um, 
you just you're never going to recoup any of that initial cost you know so if you want to if you want to upgrade it's just harder to get some of that money back um and you know unfortunately with some of the companies that are running some of the mid-grade stuff i mean you could I've, I've heard horror stories on customer service from every manufacturer and i've also heard great things from every manufacturer i just think it depends on the person and what they got into as far as trying to get repair work done or you know what happened if did they blatantly just abuse it and break it and then the the manufacturer is not going to stand behind it so personally i like eights um i ran tens for a while but during bear season it's really tough to stay in your glass when you've got the higher manu- uh, magnification unless you're putting it on a tripod just yeah. that, that somebody that's on the eight camp <laughs> i i I ran tens, man, and I had a hard time during bear season. You know, we're glassing 17, 18 hours a day sometimes. I had a hard time staying in my glass for more than about 20 minutes before my eyes would just get tired and fatigued and I'd get a headache, you know. And when I was talking to the Leica rep um, at the SCI show, you know, he mentioned, hey, you should probably think about doing eights if you're going to have a spotting scope. And he says, you just have a lot less eye fatigue. And actually a guy, the guy I started guiding with, um, he ran eights and uh, he had like, I think the first pair of Zeiss binoculars they ever made, dude, these things were ancient and, uh, but they still worked, you know, and they were still good. And John, my Leica rep, he talked me into going with the eights and I did. And I, I definitely noticed a difference for, for long days of glass. And like, I just didn't get as tired. Um, there wasn't as much shaking, you know, it's not, you don't really think about it, but when you're, when you're getting that movement in your glass, your eyes are trying to compensate for that constantly. So those small muscles that are controlling your eye movement are just constantly like twitching and working and that creates eye fatigue. And, uh, when you can look through something that's steady, you just don't have that going on. So, you know, eights was a really good option for me. A lot of guys show up with tens. Um, I've had a few people come and have 15s, but almost all of them have brought some kind of, a a stand to put them on, you know, I think if you're going to run the higher power binos, um, and not bring a spot and scope, it's a good option, but I definitely recommend having a way to support them. Yeah. You know, not, not just putting them on your gun barrel or, you know, resting them on the top, top wheel of your bow, you know, actually get a decent tripod to put them on. And, uh, it works. I do run into that question a lot. Like what optics should I buy? And, you know, it's like, <clears throat> It's like buying a bow, in my opinion. You, you shouldn't just take someone's recommend, recommendation on buying a bow. You know, you should go out and shoot as many bows as you can before you buy one. Kind of the same thing with optics. You should go to an optics counter and and hold stuff, see how it feels to you. Because if you're going to use it, you're going to purchase some high-end stuff and have it for a lifetime. It should be comfortable to you. It should be user-friendly, you know. You, you yeah. should buy, you know, above what you think you're going to need just because – you're going to have it for a long time. Yeah. hundred percent. What about a, what about a spotter for you? Do you personally use one? Like let's keep it even in the context of deer hunting. Cause obviously your guiding might be different, but um, thoughts on spotter for deer. Is that just a matter of if you're picky on trophy quality, counting points, extras, that type of thing. And would you say if you're not that guy to leave it at home, what are your thoughts? And it's, it is just a love hate relationship with the spotter, you know, and (laughs) I, I wish someone would make one that only weighed like a pound. It wouldn't be so bad. 
<laughs> but, yeah, I I really struggle with that sometimes. I I tend to always bring it, but I always kind of feel that regret when I go out and you know I, my binos are enough, especially when I'm deer hunting. It's mm-hmm. really essential when you're looking at goats and bears because you know you're having to sex those animals. So you know you're looking at a bear at a thousand yards. It's real easy to make a bad call without being on a on a spotter you know goats are the same way i mean it's it's really essential for some of those hunts where you have to identify the sex of an animal before you take it um if you're if you're really trophy hunting and you really want to know what that animal is before you go pursue it i mean a spotter is just an essential tool you know and there again is this the only hunt you're going to need a spotter for is it worth that investment i mean are you planning on you know going out west and hunting where spotting scope is really a great tool or you're going to go back to the midwest you know where you're tree stand and ground blind hunting where you probably never need to use a spotting scope again it's just you got to kind of weigh those options but there again if you buy a good one you're going to get some of your money back out of that you know mm-hmm. cool. you, don't, you decide you don't need it but yeah spotters it's always good to it's always good to go with a new buddy and just be like hey man you should probably carry the spotter and not, yeah, right. not put it in your pack <laughs> <laughs> i like it cool rafe man it's been good to catch up and thanks for the time um you know we're obviously had a blast up there can't wait to get back up there and uh and see you guys again up there in kodiak and i know that if guys have questions you know you're more than happy to help and you've even told me before whether it's about a hunt that you put on or just about Kodiak in general that you're willing to help. So I would just, uh, I don't want to overwhelm people with your information, but I would say if, if you want, uh, to get in contact with Rafe, just reach out to us directly. And I know that you'd be happy to help Rafe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any, anybody that's, uh, out there that's planning on, you know, or interested in the Kodiak hunt, especially specifically a Kodiak hunt or any general questions about Alaska or, you know, any hunt in the state, I, I've pretty much, got a good network of guys that have done those hunts or guide those hunts so any questions gear i'm I'm more than happy to to take calls or emails and answer stuff about that because above and beyond i just want people to have a great experience when they come up here you know and and if that's through preparedness or through you know just basic things like the tag deal or you know making references to people that i know are good are good dudes then i'm more than willing to do that well, that's a great way to cap it. Guys, Alaska is an amazing place. Um, something I had always dreamed of and thankfully got the chance to do for the first time this past fall. If it's a, a goal that you have, something you can work towards, I'd highly um, suggest making it happen. And don't wait too long. Make a plan, start saving, and make that adventure happen. If there's anything we can do for you, shoot us an email. to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And thanks as always for tuning in. 